What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Las Vegas, Nevada. Spanish for the Meadows, Las Vegas was settled in 1905 and officially incorporated in 1911. Las Vegas is the county seat of Clark County, which is the largest of Nevada's 17 counties, really 16 and one independent city, which is the state capital, Carson City. And Clark County has more than twice as many residents as the rest of the counties combined. Fun fact... The world-famous Las Vegas Strip is not actually located in Las Vegas. It is located within the unincorporated communities of Paradise and Winchester. Las Vegas calls itself the entertainment capital of the world and is known internationally as a major resort city with gambling, shopping, fine dining, entertainment, and nightlife among its most touted attributes. Today, Las Vegas annually ranks as one of the world's most visited tourist destinations. The city's tolerance for numerous forms of adult entertainment earned the title Sin City and has made Las Vegas a popular setting for literature, film, television programs, and music videos. Despite the fact that the history of Las Vegas is inextricably linked with the mob, the city is now home to more than 2 million residents. Over the past two decades, the city has rebranded itself as being family-friendly. But in 2022, the murder of a journalist made it clear that Las Vegas has not strayed far from its roots. We just wanted to start the podcast by saying that unless otherwise cited, all of our information comes from the Las Vegas Review-Journal and includes stories from Arthur Kane, David Ferrara, Brianna Erickson, Michael Scott Davidson, Sabrina Schnoor, Glenn Pewitt, Caitlin Newberg, and Ricardo Torres. An article in the Review Journal on Saturday, September 3rd, 2022, announced the death of Jeff Gehrman, one of the newspaper's investigative reporters and a longtime fixture in Las Vegas. The headline reported that the 69-year-old reporter was murdered outside of his home and the news sent shockwaves through the state. Little is actually known about Jeff's personal life, and I assume that's just being a good reporter, right? Probably. He's not the subject. What we do know is that he was a native Nevadan, something you don't hear a lot of. Usually mm-hmm. it's a Californian moving to Nevada. And he was actually even a native Las Vegan. Jeff was a columnist and reporter for the Las Vegas Sun newspaper for more than 20 years before moving to the larger Las Vegas Review Journal in 2010. On Saturday morning, about 10.30 a.m., police received a 911 call from a person who was saying their neighbor was dead. Responding officers found Jeff Gehrman on the ground next to his house, covered in blood. The next morning, Las Vegas police announced that Jeff Gehrman's homicide investigation is a top priority for the department. A spokesperson said the Las Vegas Metro Police Department enacted its major case protocol Saturday in the homicide investigation. This brings together a variety of resources to maximize the investigative effort and apply a sense of urgency to the apprehension of a suspect. Clark County spokesman Dan Coolin said Sunday afternoon, September 4th, the county coroner's office determined that Jeff died from multiple sharp force injuries and the manner of death was homicide. 
an autopsy revealed that he was stabbed seven times in the torso and had injuries to his arms and hands that appeared to be defensive in nature. From the beginning of the investigation, police did not believe Jeff's murder was random. The initial problem with narrowing down possible suspects was that Jeff was an award-winning and highly respected investigative reporter for more than 40 years in Las Vegas. He was known for his in-depth, hard-hitting stories that largely covered organized crime, political scandals, and corrupt government agencies. So where do you start looking for a suspect? Review Journal executive editor Glenn Cook said Jeff had not communicated any concerns about his personal safety or any threats made against him. But that did not mean there was not a long list of suspects. Before joining the Review Journal, Jeff Gehrman worked for a rival newspaper, the Las Vegas Sun. Hank Greenspun, the owner and editor of the newspaper he founded in 1950, personally led a crusade to expose all of the criminal ties, activities, and government corruption that was occurring in the city at the time. This was at a time when the mob was first getting a foothold in Las Vegas, and famed mobster Bugsy Siegel opened the first resort-style hotel. At that time, Las Vegas was considered an open city for mobsters, meaning members of any crime family could invest there. And I'm assuming invest means opening fronts for laundering money, that type of thing? Exactly. Invest is a very broad word. (laughs) It's a euphemism of sorts. (laughs) So, of course, the lure was gambling. And locals actually call it gaming. Yes, they do. And it has been legal in the state since 1931. And with that kind of money involved, crime is sure to follow. Well, especially when you have all these games that actually can be rigged. Exactly. So when Jeff joined the Las Vegas Sun almost 40 years ago, He took the lead from his boss and joined the crusade. Hence, in his wake, there is a long list of possible suspects who might have wanted to silence him. So, Kath, as you mentioned, Las Vegas and the mob are linked in its history. So it's easy to start with the stories that Jeff had written about crime families. Mm -hmm. So as an investigative reporter, Jeff broke many stories that shed light into the mafia's business in the city. But two of the highest profile are the murders of Herbert Fat Herbie Blitzstein in 1997 and casino executive Ted Binion in 1998, which, by the way, Kath, let's just talk about mob nicknames. Right. (laughs) He was apparently six feet tall and 300 pounds. He got the nickname back in like the 50s. And we've talked about it before, how like somebody who was 180 pounds was described as large. Remember in our Wisconsin episode? He was a giant, a man among men. Exactly. 175 pounds. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, wait, isn't that every man today? Right. (laughs) Aren't those the thinner and medium (laughs) sized men today? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And while that was a long time ago, the Review Journal has a podcast series called Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas. And last year, Jeff was a writer and host of season two. The stories he covered on the podcast reopened a lot of old wounds. In addition to Jeff's investigation about the crime family members in Las Vegas, over the past 20 years, he focused on investigating and exposing corruption in government. And Kath, the list of people and agencies is long. I can imagine. Wherever there's money, there's room for corruption. Well, and especially public agencies, because there's so much less oversight than Mm -hmm. you would want to think. Right. So we're going to go back 20 years, but this was a huge story. So two decades ago, in the early 2000s, Jeff wrote in depth about an FBI investigation dubbed, ready, Kath? Operation G-Sting. 
I just totally picture these agents sitting around the table being like, all right, guys, what are we going to call this one? Exactly. You know? <laughs> and you know they were all dying to come up with the name for this. Totally. Sometimes it was actually also called Strippergate, but Stripper I personally Gate. like Operation G-Sting better. <laughs> It was a very serious subject, though, because federal agents were investigating bribes and unreported campaign contributions that were taken by Clark County commissioners from a lobbyist who represented two different strip clubs. Clark County commissioners are basically the equivalent of a board of supervisors. It oversees county functions, right, as opposed to the city councils. And remember, as Kathy said at the very beginning, the Las Vegas Strip, which are all the big resort hotels and casinos, those aren't under the purview of the city of Las Vegas. They're under the purview of Clark County. The two strip club owners were trying to remove a county law that made strip clubs in the county what they call no touch. No touchy, no feely. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's what everybody called it. (laughs) But the strip club owners felt their business would improve if that law was changed. So, of course, they started at the source. Who made the decisions? The county commissioners, which is why they targeted the commissioners with bribes. And just as a reminder for those of you who didn't listen to episode three yet, but you really need to, (laughs) we take trips to places where I've lived. Right. And even though I haven't lived in Las Vegas, I did live up on Lake Tahoe. So I was very familiar with Nevada politics. The Clark County Commission is usually a springboard that leads to statewide office, federal office, meaning Congress. Mm -hmm. And just as an example, the current Nevada governor, Steve Sisolak, he was the Clark County Commission chairman and then went into the governor's office. Mm. And then the reason this was a bigger deal is that the five members who were involved in Operation G-Sting, I'm going to say that as many times as I can, (laughs) these were considered the up-and-coming stars of politics in the future. They were all early to mid-30s, they were bright, they were ambitious, and all of their political futures evaporated. Five of the seven county commissioners pled guilty or were convicted for their actions. Well, being bright, young, and ambitious doesn't mean you're not greedy. (laughs) Exactly. Beginning in 2017, Jeff Gehrman and other members of the Review Journal's investigative team looked into the financial records of the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. This is a quasi-governmental organization, and its funding comes from the state's tax on hotel rooms. The Convention Authority is overseen by a 14-member board of directors. Eight are from the county and the incorporated cities within the county, and six are leaders in the gaming and tourism industry. And Kath, all 14 members on the board are appointed by the various agencies they represent. It seems to me this would be a very important board. It is. And if you think about tourism being kind of the lifeblood of Nevada, one of the things it allows Nevada to do is not assess a personal income tax against their residents. According to a Review Journal article, Jeff, along with his colleagues Arthur Kane and Brian Joseph, examined more than 32,000 pages of receipts and found that the Convention and Visitors Authority spent millions of taxpayer dollars on high-end entertainment, alcohol, gifts for employees, and first-class trips for its board members. The article also said that the agency's lavish purchases at times had little or no business purpose and routinely violated its own expense policies. So, Kath, I was looking into this, Mm -hmm. and it is crazy some of the things they bought. So over a three-year period of time, staff from the Convention Authority spent over $700,000 on alcohol alone in whining and dining folks. They also bought jewelry from Tiffany to give to staff members. And one that came up that I was really surprised about, a longtime mayor of Las Vegas, his name was Oscar Goodman, and Oscar used to be a lawyer for the mob. Welcome to Las Vegas. Yeah. 
But as mayor, he was known for drinking Bombay Sapphire Gin and always having a showgirl on his arm. By the way, his wife is the current mayor. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm sure she loved that. Oh, yes. But the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, they were paying him in 2017 $75,000 a year for him to show up at the airport with two showgirls on his arms to welcome like VIP visitors. How do I get a job here? Exactly. (laughs) In response to Jeff's stories, the convention authority accepted recommendations to cut some of the spending and limit gifts and travel of its board members. The stories also sparked a state audit that led to criminal charges. Several of the defendants were able to plead out before going to trial, and the audit also led to the removal of the convention authority's executive leadership, including the replacement of its longtime CEO. And Kath, that was kind of shocking when I read that because he was a very powerful figure in the state. I'm sure. And drunk and bedecked with jewels. (laughs) No, that was the mayor. (laughs) In the middle of investigating the Convention and Visitors Authority, Las Vegas suffered the worst mass shooting in modern American history. This was when a gunman fired into an outdoor music festival from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. 60 people were killed, and more than 400 were wounded. Several days after the shooting, Jeff reported exclusively that the shooter had fired at two nearby jet fuel tanks. The Las Vegas Strip with all of these resorts and hotels is actually very close to the airport. And the gunman struck one of them with a bullet, but it did not cause any damage. And then the gunman turned his attention to the concert site. Now, this led to calls for better security around the tanks and an independent review that recommended stronger protections. However, Jeff wasn't done yet. During his investigation of the story, he also learned that it had been years since key public safety officials in Nevada had seen emergency response plans from a strip casino, including Mandalay Bay, where the shooting took place. Jeff led an investigation that found state officials had been lax in forcing casinos to comply with a 2003 state law to file these emergency response plans. The lack of oversight was documented in records Jeff obtained, and officials admitted that they had no standards to judge whether plans submitted by the casinos were even workable. As a direct result of Jeff's story, the state created a task force to revamp the law and strengthen emergency response plan requirements on casinos. You know, Kath, one of the things, and we didn't say it at the beginning, but I think we need to say it now, Jeff was an old school journalist. Yes. This guy was OG. Totally. He was all about pounding the pavement, having his sources, being able to dig through everything. Amazing memory, saw it grow. This was not anybody like checking online to see what they could find. No, he was a guy who had embedded sources, who respected his integrity, who worked his butt off to get the facts straight. Right. And one thing I've always said about Nevada, having lived there, and this was a while ago, But all of the names of the higher ups stay the same, whether it's elected officials or county agencies, they just change positions. Right. So I'm sure over 40 years, Jeff had sources that nobody realized because he probably started them when they were younger, but nobody leaves. Mm -hmm. Most recently, Jeff's reporting exposed city government failures that led to a deadly fire at the Alpine Motel Apartments. The building was built in 1972 and was three stories high with 41 units. From 2010 to 2017, the building failed six fire inspections. The building also received numerous code enforcement complaints during this time, but nothing was done. On December 21st, 2019, a fire started on a kitchen stove 
after the resident of the apartment left to run an errand. There was no working heat in the building, so many of the residents had taken to heating their apartments with their stoves. When the resident came back 20 minutes later, his apartment was on fire. The first 911 call came in at 4.13 a.m., and firefighters arrived four minutes later. Although some smoke detectors worked in individual units, the building's fire alarm did not work at all. Authorities did not know how long after the fire started that someone became aware of it. The building's maintenance manager is credited for waking up other residents by pounding on doors, but once residents left their apartments, they had trouble escaping. The door leading to the rooftop had been bolted shut. The back door to the building had also been bolted shut because of repeated break-ins. The owner was aware that the door needed to be replaced for months, but did nothing because of the cost. There were security bars on the windows that did not have any emergency releases, and the first floor hallway was partially blocked by several old refrigerators and a vending machine. The fire was put out in five minutes, but six people died. Among them, the building's maintenance manager, who is credited with saving many lives. Thirteen people were injured. It was revealed after the fire that there were 42 violations in total and that the fire authority had not been to the location in almost three years, despite the previous seven years of violations. The building's owners were charged with involuntary manslaughter and a host of other charges, and those cases are actually still pending. Jeff Gehrman also broke the news that a Las Vegas City Council member's campaign finances were under scrutiny by the FBI. In January 2021, Jeff reported that agents wearing FBI emblazoned jackets showed up about 6 a.m. in an armored truck and several SUVs. Agents walked out of the house a couple of hours later with a box of papers. That federal investigation is still ongoing. Jeff also reported that city officials deleted surveillance videos of an altercation between the Las Vegas City Council member whose house was just raided by the FBI and a fellow council member, and the deletion of the video was done after the Review Journal had filed a public records request. Now, the council member in question is currently running for state treasurer. Partnering with investigative reporter Art Kane, Jeff also looked into the Clark County Coroner's Office and the man who held the top job a man named John Fudenberg. In October of 2021, Jeff and his colleague reported that the coroner's office received nationwide accolades for its compassionate handling of the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas. Despite the national accolades, internally, the coroner's office had significant problems. Coroner's office employees accused colleagues of sexual harassment and retaliation. Delays in autopsies threatened the agency's accreditation. In fact, they actually were put on probation for their accreditation something that had only happened to six coroner's offices in the nation. The coroner was also often absent and county oversight was largely missing. So Jeff reported that after John Fudenberg took over as coroner in 2015, more than a dozen employees, which was about a quarter of their full-time staff, left over the next two years. Several employees who spoke with Jeff and Art Kane told a story of an often absent coroner, an unprofessional work atmosphere, and non-existent oversight from top county staff. Fudenberg was out of his office nearly a fifth of his time on average between 2017 and his retirement in late 2020. Now, the funny thing, Kathy, about Fudenberg is that after this 2017 shooting massacre, Uh he actually gained a much higher public profile and was asked to give speeches around the country to talk about how his office had dealt with the tragedy. At all of these speeches, he repeatedly told listeners that he had two college degrees. 
He said he had a bachelor's degree in business and human relations and an MBA, both from the same university. However, Jeff Gehrman and Art Kane uncovered that the university from which Fudenberg claimed to have graduated was linked in 2015 by the New York Times to a Pakistani diploma mill. <laughs> I could have used that in my youth. <laughs> Interestingly, though, Kath, knowingly claiming that you have college degrees that you did not actually earn is a misdemeanor in Nevada. Dang. Yeah. It's not free speech? It's not Darn free it. Speech. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, though, is that he didn't even need a degree to be coroner. And we've talked about coroners in the past, right? Right, right. They actually have more qualifications in a lot of states. But before 2020, the Clark County coroner's job required either a physician's license, right? Makes sense. Or experience in law enforcement. Now, Fudenberg had experience in law enforcement from what I could see from reading his resume. Fudenberg had served as a corrections officer and a deputy city marshal. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. So, Kath, Jeff was obviously a dogged reporter. Right. And I read that he and one of his colleagues, I want to say it was David Ferrara, investigated the Clark County District Attorney. Clank, clank, as you would say. Totally, totally. (laughs) So the two reporters learned that the DA, who was Steve Wolfson. He's still the DA. Oh, is he really? He's still the DA. Oh, wow. So the two reporters wrote very recently about the fact that in 2014, a longtime aide of the DA stole nearly $42,000 from the DA's campaign account to fuel a video poker addiction. Dang. I know, for real. She meant business, okay? (laughs) Well, not only that, here's the other issue. Your staff isn't supposed to have access to anything to do with your campaign. There's supposed to be a wall between the two. Baby, this is Vegas, okay? Everything goes. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Apparently it does. I'm here to tell you it does not. (laughs) So anyway, the DA, instead of putting her through the criminal justice system, this would have been a very serious felony, he allowed her to quietly resign and get addiction treatment. So this aide paid back the money is rehired two weeks after she completes an intensive six-week gambling addiction program. When she was rehired, she used her married last name, not her single last name. This whole process happened in only eight weeks. And during those eight weeks, his campaign paid her a salary. Exactly. So the icing on the cake, Jeff discovers that this aide now handles money within the district attorney's office. I could not believe it when I saw that. So, of course, the DA was criticized for giving special treatment to his close aide. And the fallout from the articles written by Jeff and his colleague caused the DA 
to have an opponent in his re-election race, something he probably otherwise would not have had because he's been there forever. Well, he actually pulled an opponent in his primary as well as his general election. So he beat his primary opponent, but now he's got another person to run against in November. Yeah. So we'll see what happens at the general election November 8th. Right. So just one last notorious issue that Jeff exposed. He investigated claims of bullying, hostility, and mismanagement at the Clark County Public Administrator's Office. What does the public administrator do? I had to look it up. I never heard of it. That's rather vague. It is. So the role of the office, though, is that when someone dies and there are no immediate family members to deal with the estate, there is no will, the office takes possession of the property, cash, any of that, and then investigators within the office attempt to locate relatives so the property can be turned over to them. Why is this not unclaimed property that the state handles? Because unclaimed property is money that they receive from business entities that right, still like, have money that you're entitled to. Like Edison or life insurance right, or whatever. Exactly. Okay, got it. The office has eight full-time employees and three part-time support staffers. But in addition to that, they actually have 15 part-time investigators who go and look and see if they can reconnect money with lost relatives. And Kathy, too, what I thought was interesting is that the head of the public administrator's office is actually an elected position. That is interesting. I'm glad you approve. (laughs) (laughs) You're always very interesting. (laughs) Fun fact. So in an article dated about four months ago, Jeff interviewed about a half dozen current and former employees who were alleging a hostile work environment created by the public administrator, a man named Robert Tellis. According to the article, Tellus was carrying on an inappropriate relationship with a staff member that harmed the office's ability to deal with the public and overseeing the estates of those who had died. I don't know the details, but part of it was that the staff member who was actually an estate coordinator, so a relatively mid-level job, she acted beyond her assigned duties, in some cases as an office supervisor, because of her favored status with the administrator. So basically everybody's been out of shape because he's... Having an affair with this gal and she gets perks. (laughs) Well, but here's the funny thing, though. In Nevada, in state government, you very clearly are not allowed to work outside the scope of your work. If it doesn't say you supervise, you do not supervise. You can lead. You can do a number of things. But to be giving her supervisor duties. I'm sure that's probably the same with many governmental entities. Yeah, I assume so. Now, because of this brewing animosity, and, and you're right, it was probably the tip of the iceberg for a lot of employees. But because of this animosity, the top supervisor under TELUS was a woman named Rita Reed. She decided to run against him in this year's primary. So they didn't say this, Kath, but I think several staff members, in order to support Rita Reed, they actually secretly videotaped TELUS and this staff member meeting at a parking structure to show proof of their relationship. So Jeff Gehrman saw these tapes and he said, what you saw was two people in the backseat of a car. You couldn't see faces. You just saw them very close together, is how he phrased it. Mm. After a certain amount of time, the backseat door opened, Tellus got out, walked away, got in his car and left. When he did that, the other passenger door opened, the employee got out, got into the front seat of her car and drove away. I'm sure they were just talking about business. And sometimes to get your point across, your face (laughs) does have to be right in front of the other person. (laughs) There's nuance. Exactly. But to be clear... Tellus and the staff member, who are both married, vehemently denied having any sort of inappropriate relationship, simply acknowledging that they had become friends. Tellus blamed a handful of old timers for exaggerating the extent of the relationship and falsely claiming he had been mistreating them. He said they have filed complaints against him with the county in the past that were not substantiated 
and he questioned the timing of the latest accusations, as reported by Jeff, at a time when he was seeking a second term in office. Leading up to the primary, Tellus posted on his campaign website several messages about Rita Reid, chiding her for manufacturing scandals and lying to reporters to help her win the primary. Several months after Jeff's article was published, Tellus lost his re-election bid in June 2022. In an August 28th message from Tellus to Ms. Reid that she shared with Jeff, Tellus wrote, You have not had truly bad bosses if you think I tortured you. You've ruined my life's path and damaged the office. You know, Kathy, one of the things that Telus's employees also said is that they were chastised if they asked him questions, which he viewed as questioning his authority. Mm-hmm. So I had a boss. We're going to call him CJ. <laughs> he did the exact same thing. Which, by the way, that's not his real initials. No, it stands for something else. If you ever want to talk about your boss in public, always make it so nobody knows who you're talking about. Right. <laughs> in fact, I worked for one boss who was male and we used to call him Carol. <laughs> In our conversations, let me be clear about that. But anyways, so the boss that I had, CJ, he did the exact same thing. It was if you asked a question, if it was about a policy, if it was about something that was happening, anything that he took the wrong way, you were dead to him. No questions. (laughs) This wasn't like an elected office. You know, I mean, this was just a normal agency. Actual leaders are not that insecure, like actual leaders. Absolutely. So based on all the stories we've told, all of these people had a reason to be furious at Jeff. In their eyes, the careers that they'd spent a lifetime building, these were taken down in a heartbeat. And as we've both said, Jeff was tenacious. He was like a dog with a bone. But he was also the hero of the public because he kept exposing all of these incidents at public agencies. Incidents or corruption? Yeah, it'd be nice. <laughs> potato, potato. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if you were a public figure or you worked for a public agency and you did anything illegal, that was his raison d'etre. Oh, mm-hmm. I like that phrase. So, Kathy, this was something I found out that I thought was really interesting and really cool. While police were looking into Jeff's murder, his colleagues at the Review Journal started investigating as well. Jeff was part of an investigations team, and everywhere I read said that it was a five-member investigations team. I could never find the fifth member. (laughs) So, and the Review Journal website only has four, but it was Jeff Gehrman, Art Kane, Brianna Erickson, and Michael Scott Davidson. I'm sorry to whoever the fifth person is. Let us know. We'll include you. His team widely admired him. As you know, with all of the changes newspapers have gone through, reporters and journalists are getting younger and younger. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeff, as we said at the beginning, was 69 years old, and they said they admired the heck out of him because he was still as enthusiastic about his work as he would have been when he was 25. He knew what he was doing was a great thing. He was exposing people. He was doing the right thing and doing it the right way. So Brianna Erickson, who I mentioned was a member of the investigation team at the Review Journal, spoke to the Daily Beast and said that she and her colleagues were just acting on instinct when they heard about Jeff being killed and were aggressively trying to help find out what happened. Michael Scott Davidson, another member of the five-person team, or four, said that they were focused on just really breaking the news of Jeff's death and getting it right, because that's what Jeff would want them to do. And it's also one of the reasons we only use the Review Journal, with the exception of this article, to get all of our information. And as police released details of the murder, Brianna and her colleagues started working through all of the mobsters, all of the elected officials, all of the government agencies that Jeff had exposed over the years. They poured over Jeff's stories and Kath, they were immediately able to dismiss some of the subjects as possible suspects. But when they looked at tweets that were directed at Jeff, they noticed that there were some angry, spiteful and downright odd tweets. 
One of Ms. Erickson's colleagues pointed out that the threats in the tweets were not out of the norm based on voicemails they received as investigative journalists, but they kept the owner of the Twitter account at the top of their list. The owner of the account was Robert Tellis, the Clark County Public Administrator, who lost his primary election in part due to Jeff's expose of the bullying, corruption, and sexual harassment in the office. On Tuesday, September 6, 2022, so this is less than a week after Jeff was murdered, police release two pieces of surveillance footage in the investigation. The first image showed a person wearing a wide straw hat, a bright orange reflective long sleeve shirt, blue jeans, gray shoes, and carrying a black or dark blue shoulder bag. The second photo was a 2007 to 2017 red or maroon Yukon Denali with chrome handles and a sunroof that investigators believed was connected to the suspect. Police asked for the public's help in finding any additional surveillance footage because they believed the suspect was casing the neighborhood to commit other crimes when Jeff was killed. Now, Kath, they don't say where this footage came from. I'm assuming it's ring doorbell. Absolutely. Yeah. Once the police released the information, Brianna Erickson and her colleagues looked up TELUS's address on Google Maps. The photo showed a vehicle that matched the police description in the driveway of TELUS's house. Dang. I know. With permission from their editors, the journalists were assigned to stake out TELUS's house to see if they could confirm it. And that makes sense, Kath, because Google Maps, I have no idea how often they update the pictures on the maps, but I know my sister's house, for example, still has the picture of a little boy in it, a neighbor kid. Right. Who I believe is 20. Oh, dude, he's like 25. Okay. Yeah. It's been a while. So it's good that they had to confirm it. As reporters drove past Telus's house on Tuesday evening, Telus was in his driveway washing a maroon Yukon Denali. This, of course, turned out to be the break the case needed. At 6.30 a.m. the next morning, Wednesday, September 7th, detectives served a search warrant at Robert Tellis's house. Tellis's home was fewer than six miles from Jeff's home, where he was found stabbed to death four days prior. Police used yellow caution tape to block off nearby streets. Shortly before 9 a.m., the department released a statement saying they were currently serving search warrants in connection with the homicide investigation. Officers allowed Tellis to go to work because he was not under arrest. Attempts by journalists with the Review Journal to reach Tellis for comment on that day were not successful. So on the day of his search, staff in his office said he came in around 10 a.m. and only stayed for about 30 minutes before leaving. Tellis arrived home at about 2.20 p.m. and he was wearing what reporters described as a white hazmat suit, which I couldn't find any reason why he was wearing that. Did you? No. And I was actually looking for pictures so I could see it. And there weren't any pictures of it either. Tellis did not respond to reporters' questions as he entered his garage and closed the door. A couple hours later, police arrived in tactical gear and surrounded the home. The area was again cordoned off with yellow tape. Police used the area in front of a nearby elementary school as the command post as police mobile units, fire engines, and medical personnel arrived at the scene. An hour-long standoff ensued before Tellis was carried out of his house and into a waiting ambulance. Metro Police detectives provided no further information until Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo told the Review Journal at around 6.30 p.m. that Robert Tellis had in fact been arrested. 
It was also announced that Lombardo and Captain Dory Corrin would provide an update on the investigation the next morning. After Tellis' arrest, Review Journal Executive Editor Glenn Cook said, The arrest of Robert Tellis is at once an enormous relief and an outrage for the Review Journal newsroom. We are relieved Tellis is in custody, an outrage that a colleague appears to have been killed for reporting on an elected official. Journalists can't do the important work our communities require if they are afraid a presentation of facts could lead to violent retribution. We thank Las Vegas police for their urgency and hard work and for immediately recognizing the terrible significance of Jeff's killing. Now, hopefully, the Review Journal, the Gehrman family, and Jeff's many friends can begin the process of mourning and honoring a great man and a brave reporter. Clark County District Attorney Steve Wolfson, who, remember, was mentioned in an earlier part of this <laughs> podcast, declined to comment on this investigation. And I'm wondering, Kath, is he going to conflict out or can he just have like one of his deputies do it? Because I'm thinking he's got reasons not to like Jeff. And well, I mean, typically a conflict of interest is you are now in an adverse position to somebody who you were defending in the past or representing in the past. So it's not exactly the case. But for purposes of propriety, it might look bad if his office prosecutes the killer and gets it wrong. He might want to just take a pass. Exactly. But his ego probably won't allow him to do that. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be one of your favorites, I can tell. (laughs) At a news conference the next morning, Las Vegas Metro Police Captain Dory Corrin said search efforts at Telus' home turned up pieces of a straw hat and a pair of shoes that matched what the suspect was seen wearing in surveillance video recovered from Garman's neighborhood. Again, ring cameras, I'm sure. Photos depicting the shoes and pieces of the hat were shown during the news conference. Captain Corn pointed out that there was apparent blood on the shoes and that the shoes had been cut likely in a manner to try and destroy evidence. He also said the straw hat was cut in a similar manner. So, Kath, at this same press conference, District Attorney Wolfson said Tellus was eventually arrested in connection with Jeff's death because they received positive DNA results that showed Robert Tellus was at the crime scene. Now, as we mentioned, he was loaded into an ambulance outside his home. And at the press conference, police said that Tellus was suffering from self-inflicted wounds that were described as superficial cuts on his arms. Tellus made his initial court appearance on Thursday afternoon, September 8th, 2022. Justice of the Peace Alana Lee Graham ruled that he would be held without bail. During the hearing, prosecutors linked Jeff's killing to his reporting on Tellus's conduct as an elected official. Chief Deputy District Attorney Richard Scow said Jeff's reporting ruined Tellus's political career and likely his marriage. The murder was Tellus lashing out at what he saw as the cause of the unraveling of his life at this point. Tellus's defense attorney, Travis Shetler, did not reply to requests for comment. He also did not make an argument regarding Tellus's bail. After Tellus's court appearance on Thursday, police released an arrest report stating that Tellus's DNA was consistent with DNA found under Jeff Gehrman's fingernails. Police said in the report that Jeff's killer was captured on video surveillance approaching his home at 1118 on Friday. So he was found on Saturday. After they collect all the video surveillance, they realize that he had been there essentially 24 hours before his body was discovered. The assailant appeared to breach the security gate. Now, they don't say whether the breach was simply opening a security gate or climbing over it. This was a gate, Kath, that led to the side of Jeff's house. Right. And it was a metal mesh gate that provided a lot of privacy, but it was still see-through a little bit. Anyway, so the killer goes through the security gate somehow. Minutes later, 
Jeff's garage door opens and he walks toward the gate on the side of the house and he is immediately attacked. He fell to the ground and never got up. What we don't know for sure is where exactly he was located. We believe it was on the side of the house behind the gate, but it's not specifically reported. Police said video surveillance shows Tellus calmly walking away from the crime scene, then returning six minutes later in his maroon GMC Yukon Denali that matches the description of a vehicle registered to his wife. Tellus then re-approached the area where Jeff's body was located and appeared to be looking for something. He then returned to the SUV and drove off. District Attorney Steve Wolfson told reporters after the hearing that he expects prosecutors to formally charge Robert Tellis with murder at his next court appearance, saying the evidence is compelling. Because Jeff Gehrman was a well-known and prominent journalist, condolences came in from many people. Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman was quoted as saying she was shocked to learn of Jeff's death. She said this was a senseless act of violence. Loss of life in this manner is always shocking and must stop. The mayor's office will be closely following the police investigation. The executive editor of the Review Journal, Glenn Cook, said, The Review Journal family is devastated to lose Jeff. He was the gold standard of the news business. It's hard to imagine what Las Vegas would be like today without his many years of shining a bright light on dark places. On Wednesday, September 7th, private services were held for Jeff Gehrman, and the next day, his family released a statement. They said, quote, Jeff was a loving and loyal brother, uncle, and friend who devoted his life to his work exposing wrongdoing in Las Vegas and beyond. We're shocked, saddened, and angry about his death. Jeff was committed to seeking justice for others and would appreciate the hard work by local police and journalists in pursuing his killer. We look forward to seeing justice done in this case. We also want to thank everyone for the outpouring of love, support, and recognition for Jeff and his life's work. Since this is an evolving case, we will keep you updated either through social media or if there's a need, we will do an episode update as well. We want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast. And the minute we don't, we're going to stop. (laughs) (laughs) But we also appreciate all the messages we're getting from listeners who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. So please just share this with your friends. And that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.